Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Mate, fantastic. How are you? I'm good. So this is not the 19th chapter in our Super League War series, but fear not, that is coming out later this week. Uh, you will have noticed a big difference at the start of the show, so we thought we'd record a little mini episode just to talk about that change. Obviously, I'm talking about the theme song. We've been looking to make a change for some time. Our trusty little State Bank big game theme has served us well over the course of these last 100 episodes. But realistically, when we decided to switch from a week-to-week format to straight history... I was at that stage thinking we needed to make a change to the theme song and make it more representative of what we're about. You know, being the lazy people we are, we never got around to it, but we've decided to make that change now. So what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I'm a bit disappointed because I love the song, the State Bank theme song. But, I mean, despite our reputation as being nerdy anoraks, we're obviously deadly outlaws because it wasn't even our song. We just took it off the internet and started using it. And you can't do that, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the other thing. We were getting more and more people asking us about the music and where we got it. But we thought that as we're trying to class everything up in this little operation, we'd uh, go legit with our theme song and get something that didn't need rights to be secured. So <laughs> so here we are. I consider myself quite the um, you know, early adopter, but realistically, I'm from Newcastle. I fear change. So I'm, I'm not that happy about it. <laughs> and I know a lot of our listeners won't be as well. Uh, so I thought we owed it to everyone to give a little explanation of our new music. And so the story behind what you heard is that when I started researching rugby league history a few years ago, I came across the fact that in the you know early 20th century through to, I don't know when it, the tradition stopped, but Wigan at their old ground, Central Park, would run out to a particular piece of music that was called Entrance of the Gladiators. And I thought, oh, how cool is that? That sounds like a sick song. How fitting for an occasion. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. So I thought, I'm going to listen to this song just to get really fired up and imagine these, you know, muscled coal miners running out to do battle. So I put the song on. And if you weren't familiar with the piece of that song that you heard as our intro, uh, you were almost certainly familiar uh, with this part of the song. <laughs> it's not exactly the uh, the gladiatorial look I was thinking of. <laughs> and I'm sure, so that was written by a Czech composer uh, named Julius Fukic, primarily wrote uh, marching music, was a military conductor. So I don't think when he wrote that piece, he had the idea that it would be clown music. <laughs> and, and, you know, the title entry of the gladiator speaks of that as well. Uh, and to me, there was something really 
instructive in that. Just the idea of meaning and the objective value that we assign, you know, whether it's a sound or a, an image, whatever it might be, we assign it a meaning that we see as being the truth or an objective fact about that. But especially in terms of history, context is everything. But it's very rugby league as well because our old uh, artwork was the lady running onto the field and bashing the players with a handbag. I mean, and obviously there's the circus element of rugby league that really <laughs> suits it. <laughs> yeah, of course. But even leaving aside that comical element, uh, I think it's particularly suited to a show about history. Just the idea that we don't know what the moment we're living in means now. It's going to be people in 20, 30, 100 years determining that for themselves. And that will change over time. And that will change depending on who's telling the story. Yeah, don't they, they'll look back on our era very fondly with the Instagram selfies, etc. They'll be like, what was going on there? <laughs> but uh, it's 100% right. A Czechoslovakian composer ends up in rugby league. I mean, it couldn't be better. Yeah, so I, I think it's brilliant. So I hope everyone will learn to love it as much as we do now. It is going to be our new theme going forward. Uh, and if we do have any Wiganers listening maybe anyone who remembers you know going to central park when that music was still played would love to hear from you in particular every time i hear wigan i just get chills thinking about it like thinking about those great 80s and 90s teams and like mm. how we used to see it over here late at night on telly for the challenge cup final and stuff it's, it's something about wigan that just is awesome yeah i, I remember when i was uh, either a teenager or preteen my dad went over to england on a business trip and he he said oh, i'll bring you back a soccer shirt. What soccer team do you want? And <laughs> I, I, I said, oh, can I just get a Wigan jersey? Like, that was the height of English sport for me in that era. Yeah, absolutely. So that was just a way of explaining why you might have heard something different when you downloaded this episode. While we're here, we thought we might as well talk about a couple of other things. Uh, firstly, we had the 25th anniversary of April Fool's Day during the week. Yeah. And so I thought it would be a cool thing to do to look at all the anniversary coverage uh, to see what all the various news outlets had to say about the war. Uh, and i got to say, I was shocked at how little coverage there was. I don't know why you're shocked because it's been this way since 1995. <laughs> I, I know, but I, I really thought this was – I was actually, like, worried about it. I was thinking, you know, our little rink and dink organization of two has been putting this story out for the last year, but now here come the big boys, you know, 25th anniversary. What better chance to, you know, tell the story in full? So I thought we were going to get swamped with, you know, big media outlets covering the war, but it passed almost without comment. Uh, is it the case that the only people that know are too shell-shocked still to talk about it? <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's 25 years, you know, they were filmed like 40 films about Vietnam by this point in, <laughs> you know, that history. And I guess it's 25 years since Super League broke. I I'm sure there are more anniversary tie-ins going to come up over the course of the year. It doesn't necessarily all have to be pumped out on April 1. Obviously, there's some bigger things going on in the world as well. And I have heard little things that various outlets might be doing uh, to commemorate Super League. I know Steve Mascord has a book in the works about the 1997 season, which we're both obviously keenly anticipating. I hope that comes out before our 97 coverage because that's going to be a yeah. great source <laughs> document. Thanks, Steve. I kind of hope it doesn't as the one that will be doing this research. I'm like, oh, Jesus, another book to read, really? <laughs> yeah, we. I just say we quite well, don't I? 
<laughs> but there were a few stories, so I thought we'd just cover what there was. One of the highlights for me was an interview with John Quayle done by Scott Bailey of Australian Associated Press. So yeah, so some good insight in that, uh, talking in particular about Super League as it relates to everything happening now with coronavirus. Quayle's quote was, there's no greater challenge than this, but the challenge to administrators is how we come out of it. Not only our sport, but all the codes. You have to come out of it stronger. It's very important because you can't control what's happened now. It's out of your control. But if you're in the same position in three years' time, you haven't achieved anything. <laughs> to quote Corey Parker, I think it's, you know, to do with the happenings and I suppose the goings-on of the coronavirus. <laughs> Like, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there in happenings and goings on. So I'm glad Corey's getting to the bottom of it. <laughs> this is a, a rude thing to do, but I forgot the Twitter user who tagged us in it, this, but apparently Graham Lowe uh, was being interviewed during the week and talked about if Arco and Quayle were still in control, the NRL wouldn't have been the mess they're in over coronavirus. I mean, they couldn't stop Super League. How are they supposed to stop a global pandemic? I reckon if they were in control when this dropped... They would have been suggesting to people, everyone smoke Rothmans to overcome it. <laughs> but one thing I do agree with, and one thing that really struck me reading Quayle's words is, for all their faults, which we've discussed at length, both Arthurson and Quayle were eminently capable. And when you look at the administrators we've had in the 25 years since, it has been a very mixed bag. I don't know if it's society in general, but it's more like almost with um, prime ministers and presidents as well, like there was more respect for the office back in the Arco Quayle era, I feel. It's now everyone's default position is to tear the position down and then we'll see how they go from there. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that not only the online stuff, which Quayle and Arco didn't have to deal with, there's definitely been a shift in the journalism as well, where, you know, the Daily Telegraph, before they switched to being pro Super League, the criticism of the Telegraph was always that they were, you know, too in the pocket of the ARL. Yeah. Whereas now it seems there's there's a real push in journalism, especially from that side of the equation, to score points as often as they can on the back of criticizing administration. But also back then, like journalism was at a higher level. Like like now there's not even sub editors, it's just an alcoholic at home uploading their own document replete with spelling errors and grammatical errors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, overall, that, that's definitely worth tracking down if you didn't get to see that, that interview with Quayle. I was going to say, um, for all the um, making fun of Laurie Daly we do on this show, uh, despite loving him, him and Michael Clark, who I would call the two biggest fence sitters in the history of uh, broadcasting, covered it on their radio show. A few listeners sent it to us online, which was um, interesting. Yeah, so that was really good. I listened to that interview and a tie-in story that Daly wrote for the Canberra Times uh, appeared in a number of other outlets as well. And I was, you know, preparing to come in here all critical of the interview and the contents of the article for not really giving enough insight. But then I realized I've been deeply immersed in this world for the last 18 months. And uh, it's scary to think that it's been that long that this has dominated my life. <laughs> but... I realized that I was unfair in my criticism, and it seems like in an anniversary like this, that broad, generalized kind of 
uh, recounting of the story is probably what you'd expect to get. Well, it's for the public consumption, for Christ's sakes. It'd be like Oppenheimer going, like, this guy at the butchers knew nothing of the nuclear bomb. <laughs> yeah, so there was the Daily interview. There was another one with Gordon Tallis. Uh, Dell had a story as well. So there was a, a bit out there, but nothing like revelatory for me. So at the end of it, I didn't have much to go on. I thought this was going to be like a half hour segment of breaking down all the revelations we got from you know, the stories coming out, but... Well, think about it, like, if you were trying to tell a, a millennial who had never heard of the Vietnam War about it, how would you describe it in broad terms? It'd be like, you know... Yeah, exactly. And that's why I realised this morning that uh, the planned criticism I, I had was uh, not really fair. I'm just happy that Laurie's branching out into some uh, opinions now. It's great. Yeah, well, it was definitely, like, a, a good interview to listen to, so uh, track that down. NRL.com does a daily on this day. They did cover the war, but they led with the birthday of Hazem El, El Masri. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, all respect to El Magic, but... <laughs> but at least start with a positive, you know. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, just on media and, and social media in particular, we, we've had a really good week of interactions. Loving the discussion this week. Some really good stuff coming back at us for what we had to say last week. A, a lot of disagreement, which we love to get. So we, we don't expect everyone to have the same opinions we do. So please come at us at anything uh, you disagree with us about. And my favorite discussion during the week uh, was started by at NRL Conspiracies on Twitter, who suggested some topics for NRL 30 for 30s uh, and yeah. heard some great suggestions uh, in response to that. And I thought we might do a top five each of our own. That account is a very good rugby league follow account, intelligent uh, rugby league posts. I haven't seen your list. You haven't seen my list. I thought uh, it would be interesting to see if we have any overlap. Uh, I just wanted to set up my parameters. Uh, you might have some of your own, Andrew. So Go. I'll give my parameters. If you do have any, you can throw yours in. In line with the actual 30 for 30, which for anyone who doesn't know is a documentary series on ESPN covering all range of sports, primarily US-based, of course, but uh, some of the best documentaries, period, you'll ever see. Masterful. As with the actual 30 for 30, I've kept mine within the last 40 years or so. Uh, a couple of reasons. I'm imagining that these will actually be filmed documentaries. So I want to ensure there's enough footage. I want to make sure the key players involved are alive and in a position to talk. And the other parameter I had was to try to cover a range of stories. So some really serious ones, uh, some more lighthearted ones. Some 30 for 30s have like almost a full comedic style. I haven't included any of those, but I'd love some listener ideas on the best NRL comedy documentaries you can do. <laughs> uh, did you go into this with, with any parameters? I kept mine to the same sort of parameters, amazingly. So Yeah, cool. Uh, so how about we'll just get started. We'll go back and forth from five to one. Why don't you start with your number five? Number five, I thought um, we could do the worst teams of all time, Tommy Radonica's Wests and um, Glebe in the 20s, that type of thing, all the way through. There's teams that lost every game during the season and what that meant for the club and the players involved and what happened to the players involved. So I'd like to see something like that, but, but done respectfully, not in a mocking way. So were you thinking about making it uh, just talking about the worst teams and going from like, you know, one team in the 20s right through to, you mentioned West, like, or were you thinking more focus on one specific team? Well, I mean, it could be both. Maybe a bit of background on the early ones that we can't talk to. And then if you can go in depth on someone like Wes, it would be good as well. But yeah. I like the idea of it's the rugby league heart to come out of a, you know, a terrible season with your head held high. Mm. 
Because I actually love that idea of the Tommy Radonikus West team, especially coming out of all the, the troubles in the early 80s we talked about, the guessing competitions <laughs> and the rest of it. The You know, right through to in the 90s, Tommy Radonikus building a brick shed <laughs> as their, you know, training gym. Yeah, legend. Because when you look at those big league team photos, it's remarkable how few players you could name in some of those squads. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a, an actual conclusion with the formation of the West Tigers. So I think that could be a really interesting one. Yeah, agreed. How about your five? Yeah, so my five was the uh, 2003 Kangaroo Tour. Interesting. So my thinking here was it came at a time when international football was at one of its lowest ebbs. Our longtime Twitter correspondent at Paul Mack, uh, he had a tweet about wanting a 30 for 30 on the disastrous 2000 World Cup. So you're coming off the back of this Super League war where international football, it was an afterthought. The game reformed. That World Cup wasn't particularly great. It was embarrassing was what it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had the 2001 Kangaroo Tour, which was almost canned entirely because of September 11. So that was one aspect of it, coming in the wake of 9-11 and then Bali. One of those 30 for 30s where real-world politics has an impact on sport, and you see that in the documentary. Yeah. So I think that's a, a really interesting element. And then the fact that it was an attempt to keep the tradition of kangaroo tours alive and one that, you know, failed. Like, we haven't seen a kangaroo tour since. I know we had one planned. Who knows if or when that will ever come back. But especially coming off the back of that disastrous World Cup, we're at a time now where World Cup football is the international saviour, or it potentially could be. And so how far we've come with that World Cup and how the old style of the international calendar had reached its use-by date naturally. We have to give the International Rugby League a pat on the back here for from 2000 to 2020, how International Rugby League has improved. I remember in the, the early days of our podcast, you especially being quite derisive about the World Cup. Yeah. And that was in 2017, you know, and yeah. so we have come a long way. The other interesting things about that tour in particular, just the general apathy and immaturity of the players in general. So you had Willie Mason talking about their preparations as being like a Kentucky tour. You had, uh, obviously, the following year, Luke Rooney's comments about Prague and its <laughs> lack of TABs. Still the most rugby league comment of all time. And, you know, how that ties in with previous tours, you know, like Langlands leading his players to do a walkout on Harry Bath, who was taking them to the Louvre because they didn't want to go look at paintings, you know. <laughs> it was a very much a transitional period for the NRL where the quality of games in general wasn't that great. The quality of players wasn't that great. Like it was quite a weak squad. And you can see that with that was the tour where Chris Anderson selected Darren Smith, who was playing at St. Helens at the time. Still a disgrace. And then on top of all of that, you've got the kangaroo thief scandal as well. So I think there's a lot of interest there. Uh, what was your number four? My number four was uh, UK cameos from the 50s to current. Right. With Rex Mossop and, and that sort of thing going over there for the whole, Harry Bath had a whole careers going into the to the 80s with uh, Sturlo and Vorton and Kenny and these great cameos in the in the UK. And then, you know, the Joey one, which was only four games, which it's still legendary, you know. And were you thinking of doing it both ways, like you're putting in your Ellery Hanleys as well, or were you thinking just... I think you could do two. I think you could do both ways. The impact of the English cameos, which Australian fans, we just love that. 
and I think the, the English game loves it as, just as much the other way. Well, that's funny because that ties in with uh, one of mine. So I'll, I'll just mention that now, which was a 30 for 30 on the 1985 Challenge Cup. And I think uh, Dave Hunter, I think it was, actually suggested this on Twitter. To me, that's a no-brainer. And you would focus or at least start with that cross-country kind of transfers that were going on. Still a magical game of rugby league. Mm. But so at that point in particular, one thing I like about your idea is you're seeing a few eras of that happening. So you have players you know, going to England in the 40s uh, and into the early 50s, and in many cases playing out their whole careers or the best part of their careers over in England. Yeah. You see in the 70s that's starting to happen in reverse with you know, your Tommy Bishops, etc. And then obviously now we're seeing the top English players coming out young and basically playing their careers in Australia and the Australian players, you know, having little Indian summers over in England. But at this point in the in the 80s, you're getting those short-term transfers. You know, Ellery Hanley playing eight games for Balmain in 1988. You know, I think Wally played four or six for Wakefield, you know. So probably never before was each competition more aware of, or the fans of each competition more aware of the players and teams from the other side. When it was the Australian players going to England for the paychecks, maybe late 90s, early 2000s, we didn't really know much about the English international team, but now we do because of the yeah. being over here. It helps grow the game internationally, I think. Yeah, for sure. And just to pivot from that to my concentrated one I wanted about the 1985 Challenge Cup, there's so much about that that just the actual game itself, which... Uh, I'll tell you what, we're going to put out the episode we did on the Challenge Cup as a bonus episode this week. So you'll get a couple of bonuses from us. So I've just made that executive decision, Andrew. I hope you're on board with that. <laughs> I'm all for it. It was one of my favorite conversations I've ever had with you. It was one of my favorite viewing experiences watching Rugby League was to sit down and watch that game when we did that a couple of years ago. Yeah. Gun players everywhere. You've got Chicka Ferguson and Henderson Gill on the wings for Wigan. You know, baby Sean Edwards at fullback. From the whole side, you know, Lee Crooks, Gary Schofield coming off the bench. James Lailua was a revelation for me. I'd never really seen much of him play before. Uh, it was coming at the start of Wigan's run. And then on top of that, Sterling and Kenny, the ultimate club combination going against each other. Seeing um, Brett Kenny in full flight, 1985, was My just yeah, beautiful for someone that was only born in almost 1980. So. Yeah, I think both Kenny and Sterling have got to a point where they're underrated now. Everyone's kind of forgot to some extent, but... I think Sterling for sure. Both of them at the absolute peak of their powers. Something like this would really put them in context for you know the league world that we're in now. Well, I saw in the last couple of weeks, people have been calling for Brett Kenny to be made an immortal. So I think when you've got that um, elegance and class, that gazelle-like style, I think you're never going to go out of fashion. But Sterling, very unfashionable style now, you know? Mm. So I think that hurts him, but yeah, he shouldn't be forgotten. And the last point I had about this making for a great documentary is just the visuals, the Englishness of it all, like Wembley and those cigar-chomping, you know, rose-wearing officials on the sideline. Like, it, <laughs> yeah. it would just look great. It looks so cool. Brett Kenny coming out with his hands in his pockets, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can't wait to hear that episode again myself. Uh, so what was your number three? Uh, my number three is the Men of League organization and the, the history of that and the good things they've done. Yeah, right. And the touching on the financial um, benefits of the, the players these days compared to the old days type thing. And I mean, there's a couple of ways of doing that story. One of them would be like really quite 
sad and quite a serious look at players post-football. Thinking about doing half it like that to pull the heartstrings, but then show the brotherhood, the camaraderie of rugby league men, you know, bring it back. Mm. And I mean, you could even go beyond the men at league and just like, I would love just a camera spending a day at a kangaroo reunion. Oh, yeah. So, so what was your number three? My number three is the Brisbane Rugby League in the 80s. Awesome. And we get a lot of people writing to us asking us to do more history about uh, the, the BRL. I understand like north of the border, it's a big sore point that that competition with such a rich history is almost forgotten now. And the historical record is the New South Wales competition. It's a disgrace. And so because of that, you can make the argument that the 80s is the wrong decade to pick. And it's just, it's not doing the competition justice. You know, if you went back to a time where the competition was more on par with the Sydney competition, that might be more fair. And in many ways, the 80s is the part of the story that's being told the most. So I don't know if the people who were always asking us for more Queensland history would prefer to hear us talking about its strength, not its decline. But just a couple of things about the BRL in the 80s as a story... A, it was this time when you had immortals and all-time greats playing in the competition. Because of TV and the growth of State of Origin, people in New South Wales were never more aware of the quality of some of these players. Yeah. You had them regularly coming down to the Sydney comp. And, you know, at the time when through Origin, Queensland had made its case as the global rugby league stronghold, the competition was starting to come apart. And then obviously that the entry of the of Brisbane and the Gold Coast is a compelling story in itself. So getting that story, getting more from the BRL club side of things would be fascinating. I'd like to see two episodes on it, mate. The history corner we did on the BRL in the 80s was awesome uh, to learn about that. But hearing about it when they were their own private island, you know, like in the 60s and 70s, would be awesome as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, And the last thing about it is just as a visual thing, kind of like the Challenge Cup, the 80s just looks good on TV. Well, certain 80s did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What was your number two? Uh, This is a plug for Nick Campton, friend of the show, and his wonderful piece in the Telegraph on the North Sydney Bears, because Flo and the Bears, you could just follow that piece of writing and put that to camera. It would be a masterpiece. I love it. Uh, if you haven't read that, Google Nick Campton, North Sydney Bears. You get a four-part extravaganza on the history of the Bears in the 90s. So good. It's hard to add to that. Like, it was such a fantastic piece. We've plugged it on the show before. Uh, he had another great piece on the Titans 2010 run uh, during the week. So um urge everyone to, to seek that out as well. The other thing you can add, I reckon, is just going more into depth in the flow and what sort of bloke flow is and just this club man throwing back to another era, you know? Um, I would definitely sign up for that. And the other thing is you got like a good quality of talking head as well. Billy Moore, great uh, screen presence, would give good interviews. Yeah. Probably limit Gary Larson's talking parts, but... <laughs> Just subtitling, it's all right. <laughs> what do you got, number two? Uh, so this is, you know, like some of my other choices, is piggybacking on some of the work we've done already. And this is in the tradition of those classic heartbreaking 30 for 30s. Um, I'm thinking of ones like Once Brothers, uh, The Two Escobars. That is Ben Alexander. Um, yeah. So in researching it and in uh, the subsequent chat I had with James Smith about it, I realized that the story went 
far beyond the individual tragedy and the people that were immediately involved, but cut to the heart of Penrith as a community, Mm. like what that team meant and what it meant to have it ripped apart so suddenly and so tragically. It's hard talking about it. And it would be tough viewing, but getting that perspective from the key figures 30 years later. It would be a beautiful documentary, but it's just such a hard topic to even think about. That episode we did on it, I haven't listened back to it. It was too heart-wrenching. Yeah, uh, it's obviously an unspeakable tragedy. But when I think of of the the 30 for 30s I've mentioned and a few others, they've done that same thing where they've taken something that is so sad and so, you know, decades later is still broken and they've managed to make something beautiful out of it. Yeah. And I think it could also actually do some real educational good. Like if you think about how effective the segment that uh, Freddie and Brandy recorded last year was. Yeah. but yeah, so obviously a hard one, but one that I think it almost has to be told. That one would be number one in the ratings for sure if that come out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what? speaking of number ones, what was your number one? My number one, this is a story I think needs to be told in detail, the Kevin Humphreys story, the rise and fall. Yeah, right. Yeah. With the ever-present gambling hypocrisy in rugby league, I'd like to see a fair documentary on, on this guy. And then you've got his son, Stephen, who went on to make a good life for himself as a business executive and rugby league boss to show, uh, you know, the family side of it as well. Yeah, to me, this would make a great series. Mm. Like, you know, uh, that documentary series, Cricket in the 70s. I'd love to see rugby league in the 70s through the prism of the Humphreys era, not just his downfall, but... Uh, his administration in general, covering the good and the bad. That's right. You know, going into the cartel in the 70s, the attempts that were being made to clean up the game and various innovations that came about under his administration. Well, it's a clear point that I'd like to make that this brilliant administrator that, you know, revolutionised the game in many ways was brought down by the very thing that the game's funded on. So it's yeah, sad and poignant. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of irony there, isn't there? And would you have the number one on your side? I'm actually, I'm, I'm really pleased that we had very little overlap in our top fives, but I'm legitimately shocked that you didn't include a 30 for 30 on Warren Ryan in your top five. <laughs> well, I wanted it to be watchable. <laughs> so I toyed with the idea of a comprehensive top-down walk doc uh, start to finish. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that like the best biopics, the way to get the best story, the most cohesive story, is to get to the essence of a man by telling the story of a concentrated period in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that reason, uh, it is the Dogs of War. It has to be Dogs of War, doesn't it? So a story with so much drama, like so much. The times in the past where we've touched on Canterbury in the 80s, I've just had to restrain myself and pull out so much content that I wanted to talk about because it would have just derailed us <laughs> for three hours. We've had at least half a dozen direct messages and emails telling personal walk stories, which we can't broadcast <laughs> due to fear of repercussion or defamation type stuff, you know, but just amazing stuff we've heard about the man. It's just the legend grows every week. Can you just think about the quotes and the stories you could get for a documentary like this, getting former players talking about their walk memories. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope it's done while he's still alive and with it because um, I'd like to hear his rebuttal as well, more than anything in the world. Yeah. But like at the same time, there was all this drama, all these interpersonal issues coming up again and again. There was just so much success. And the fact that the dogs had a successful era 
just before him and just after him. So you don't only have the walk story, you've got the story of the strength of the club, Bullfrog, all the rest of it, the calibre of players they had. The 1988 Grand Final where Ryan went against his old club coaching Balmain, the drama there. Uh, to me, it is the biggest no-brainer of all to tell this story. Oh, mate, you could do a 10-part series on it. So that that's our top fives. Uh, would love to hear yours. So we might, in addition to putting out this episode, we might put up a, a separate Twitter post. So um, please send us in your uh, your ideas for the best rugby league 30 for 30s. And maybe someone with actual clout will catch wind of it and actually start producing some of these. It's a no-brainer. Like you said last week when you were excoriating Fox Sports, but the NRL as well, we've seen some good bits and pieces. But yeah, it's ripe for the picking. ESPN, for Christ's sakes, pull your finger out. So, uh, as I said, we will be back with Chapter 19 later in the week, uh, and I'll put out that Challenge Cup history corner as well. So I'm really excited about our next chapter. I think it might just ruffle a few feathers. I'll say no more. You'll you'll hear it all later in the week. Uh, But on that note, we will get out of here. So as I said, we'd love to hear your thoughts at therugbyleaguedigest at gmail.com, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're all over it. Uh, So let us know what you think, and we will speak to you later in the week. Bye-bye. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Listen. 